Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. As I'm recording this, most Americans, most Christians, are celebrating Easter in a really non-normal way. Because of social distancing, because of coronavirus, we are celebrating that he has risen in a way that we've maybe never celebrated before. We're doing it in solidarity while in isolation, while in confinement, while we're quarantined and sheltered in place. The irony in all of this that I see is that we are symbolically living out that which Jesus experienced. He was isolated, he was basically excluded, quarantined. People had warned against him, warned against following him. Now we are honoring the risen Christ and all that Christ sacrificed for all of humanity in a matter similar to those who wrote the works of the New Testament. Maybe not so much that we're in prison, maybe not so much that we're being persecuted for what we believe, but we are being asked to to stay away, to not connect to people, to live in a temporary isolation until the crisis is resolved. And so what are we learning from all of this? What are we joyfully receiving even though we're suffering? Because I think that's what Easter is about, for me anyway. Now, I don't formally celebrate it in the matter that many Christians do or even many non-church practicing Christians do. But symbolically, I hold a reverence for the understanding of Passover and of Easter and what what that represents for what was sacrificed for me. And I know a lot of people don't like the term sacrifice, but as a parent, I understand that there are there's no other way to term it. It's a sacrifice that you make for your children to make your children happy, to keep your children safe, to provide for your children, to teach your children. There are a lot of sacrifices to the self. And right now, we are we're in a season of not only spring and rebirth of the risen Christ, of learning how to repent and turn away from our previous ways, and are now standing in grace and love and mercy in the name of God. And we have to all do it sometimes by ourselves. It seems like we're doing it by ourselves. And so what can we learn from all of this? That's just kind of what I'm contemplating on. That's what I'm trying to figure out, not only for myself, but as a way that I can articulate that, that might, I don't know, help somebody else understand all of this. Because we're in a, a land of confusion and panic and worry. We need a way to see that we're going to get through it. And then we're going to look back and realize none of that really matters. Because there is everlasting life. We have the promise of everlasting life. My next guest focuses his philosophy on the promise of Christianity that is of everlasting life. This episode welcomes philosopher, writer, and president of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychedelic Christianity, Jack Call. Jack is the author of four books. Jack is the author of four books, Dreams and Resurrection, God is a Symbol of Something True, Life in a Psychedelic Church, Memories and Musings, and most recently, Psychedelic Christianity on the Ultimate Goal of Living. And so we tackle psychedelic Christianity. Jack recalls his psychedelic experience with LSD, and we talk about his introduction into the Boohoo Bible 
his cultish practice of psychedelic Christianity, and for all you philosophy nerds out there just like me, I'm sure you've always wondered what you get when you mix solipsism with nihilism. Jack Call breaks it down. What ends up taking place here is this is kind of a philosophical rabbit hole. So what I'm preparing you for is deep thinking, imaginative thinking, psychedelic thinking, thinking that's beyond your scope of what you really thought you could believe. What I really appreciate about Jack is that he explains why he needed to really understand what he believed that Christians claimed that they believe. And so what he points out is how important it is that as we are journeying along, that we continue to ask the questions, that we see whether or not things are logically lining up for us, that we poke at things. And that's kind of how I am. I want to understand what it is that I'm claiming to affirm or believe. And psychedelic Christianity really kind of uncovers some of the questions that we can ask as we are poking around to see, you know, what gives? What does this mean? We talk about what does loving your neighbor look like? Does loving your neighbor mean the entire world or does loving your neighbor mean just the people that you're in proximity to? And how do you love your neighbor if your neighbor is Satan? What Jack breaks down is that love is concrete and particular. And it's something that, you know, echoes off of a lot of the the latest conclusions I've been coming to is that love desires or requires proximity and intimacy and one-on-one unique interactions, which is what I think Jesus unveils throughout the Gospels, throughout the story. And so Jack offers a very unique perspective, a different point of view for us to consider what loving our neighbor looks like and who our neighbor really is. And then finally, something for the libertarians. We talk about why the highest goal would be for ourselves to stop doing the things that are unjust rather than forcing other people to stop doing unjust things. And this is something I just wanted to read first before we drop into the conversation because it really stuck out to me. It was something I took notes on as I was listening to the playback. And so I'm quoting Jack here in this following. The highest goal would be for ourselves to stop doing the wrong thing because we do understand that it is the wrong thing. And we love God and we love the neighbor as ourselves. And that's what would bring about the kingdom of God. It's when I stop doing something unjust because I realize it's unjust. When I ask for forgiveness, it's because I realize what I've done is wrong. The kingdom of God is not about forcing anyone to do anything. And that's just a little taste of something that Jack Call offers us throughout the conversation. A little bit about Jack Hall. He is the janitor and president of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychedelic Christianity. He was a clergyman in the Neo-American Church for six years. He worked as a typesetter for 11 years, earned a Ph.D. in philosophy from Claremont Graduate University, and taught philosophy at Citrus College for 19 years. He has published essays on the relations between philosophy, religion, and social science as well as the four books that I listed earlier on philosophy and religion. He lives with his wife in California. To connect with Jack, first I recommend that you check out his book collection on Amazon. Then you can find him on Facebook under Jack Call. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed your Easter weekend. I hope you made it the best that you possibly could given the circumstances. And as always, I ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of Jack Call and psychedelic Christianity. Enjoy the show.
where do you get LSD? Well, I don't get any anymore. Was this uh, like, no, yeah, tell me the like story. From your friends, I mean. Yeah? Like oh. everybody was doing it, you know. Neat. Uh, but I haven't, you know, I haven't taken a trip for probably 30 years. Yeah. So. But I don't feel like I need to either. Uh, I'm not saying I won't ever do it again, but um, uh, I may never do it again. You may never do it again. I've always, I thought for a little bit I wanted to do it. And the more I read about it and the more I hear about other people's experiences, I think I'm so not in the headspace to do that yet. I would freak myself out and make, it would be a bad trip or something. Um. I, I bet you at least your first trip would be a good trip. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about that, you know, I don't like to go around proselytizing or recommending people take it or, you know, cause it's like a big responsibility. It is. But I, I would say I would think it more likely that if you did take a trip and I hadn't recommended it, uh, you would be mad at me. <laughs> that if I had recommended it and you would, that you would be mad at me. And this book created so many different discussions just within my family and with my friends. And I really loved, um, I really loved your right relationship with God thing. And so I'm wondering if we can just unpack that a little bit, just for the listeners who haven't read your book, if you can talk about kind of what made you see that this was a part of, of, of the goal and of living. Well, I could kind of give you a little history, uh, personal history. Okay. I was an atheist for a long time, uh, but I did I think of myself as spiritual or religious. Like I think ever since I took my first psychedelic trip, uh, I mean, I was already getting interested in it, but that made me, that turned me into kind of a mystic. But I didn't think of it in theistic terms. I thought of it, you know, I was a big fan of Alan Watts. And so I, I looked to like Eastern religions as sort of the model, the Zen Buddhism and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and then I joined a psychedelic church called the New American Church, which uh, was not a, not a Christian church. It was founded by um, Art Kleps, who was the son of a Lutheran minister. He was a school psychologist and he was one of, he lived at Millbrook. He had gone to Millbrook with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert and Ralph Metzler and those guys from Harvard after they got kicked out of Harvard. And uh, he started the, the New American Church there. And it, it just had like three principles, and they were something like um, that the psychedelic substances are sacraments. Uh, I think the original version said something like a, a gift of the grace of God, um, and then later that was changed because he became less theistic himself and, and changed it into something like, uh, and that they lead to enlightenment, which is the realization that life is a dream and the externality of relations is an illusion. Hmm. And, um, and then we had this, see, then the one, uh, one of the other principles was we don't encourage the ingestion of psychedelics by those who are unprepared. Anyway, I found this book called the Boohoo Bible in a bookstore in Long Beach. 
and I was in my twenties at that time. And I started looking through it and it was, it was the style of it was like off the wall, humorous, and yet a very serious defense of psychedelics as a religious um, practice. And it just really appealed to me. So I bought the book and then there was a card in it, uh, a membership application. And there was even a, even a box that says, want to be a boohoo. And the, the head of the church was called the chief boohoo and the ministers were called boohoos. Had all kinds of humorous titles and language like that to, uh, to make it keep us from taking ourselves too seriously. You know? Yeah. Anyway, so I joined that church, and I was a member of that church, and my wife did too, uh, for about six years. And we got very involved in it. I was like his right-hand man for a while. And, and it's like what now people would call a cult, but you know, he, he very much objected to that term and insisted it was a church. But I got disillusioned with that church uh, in the long run because I, I started doubting uh, his philosophy, which was, he called it solipsistic nihilism. Hmm. Solipsism is the view that, that uh, all that exists is the mind of the thinker. And so, for example, like if you think of it in terms of a dream, uh, in, in a dream, everything I'm dreaming of is a product of my mind but it seems like they're other people mm. and things external to me and things outside my control. But when I wake up and realize it was a dream, I don't think those things really were external to me or outside my control. I think it's a product of my, you know, unconscious mind. That's sort of the way we tend to think of dreams. Uh, and then the nihilism part comes in, I guess, because if, if I'm dreaming, if, if reality is just a dream uh, that I'm dreaming, then I'm as much part of that dream as anything else is. So, you know, like nothing is real. Ultimately. Yeah. And that was sort of his philosophy. I mean, his, that's what he got out of his psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. It made sense to me just philosophically, you know, yeah. I mean, logically it sort of works as you can't even really refute it. Uh, and I went along with it. But eventually I started to have my doubts about it. And I also just, of course, it was like, uh, I, I actually wrote a book about this a long time ago, and I've just recently been preparing a second edition, which come out, I don't know when, but hmm. uh, telling about all these experiences. But uh, if you read it, <laughs> I mean, I could go into great detail, but I won't. But um, yeah, it, he was also an alcoholic. Hmm. But, like when I first joined the church, he was sober. He'd been, you know, he's on the wagon and he, he, he knew it was bad for him. He, and I think the psychedelics helped him get over the alcoholism, but uh, he went back to drinking, you know, at some point and he's a totally different character when he's drunk. And uh, even though he's not a mean drunk or, you know, he's still a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be part of a church that's run by a drunk. Yeah. That's kind of what it came down to. And so I ended up quitting that. And then so for quite a while, I was disillusioned. And then I thought, well, the problem is, you know, churches are no good. I shouldn't have joined a church. Mm. And then I think, well, I studied philosophy more. I went back to graduate school. 
got my PhD in philosophy and became a philosophy professor at a community college. Uh, and so I think, you know, my students had an effect on me. And uh, I also taught a class called Great Religions of the World. Uh, and all that had an effect on me. And I remember at one point, I was, I was the advisor to our philosophers club at, at the college. And uh, this was like in the early 2000s sometime. There was this controversy about intelligent design um, teaching intelligent design in the schools as an alternative to teaching evolution. Hmm. If you recall that or not. Yep, I do. We had a, um, the philosophy club wanted to do a symposium about that. And so that experience kind of led me to writing my, uh, my first recent book, which was called God is a symbol of something true. And it was sort of my first step back towards theism because what I, the basic principle or my basic thought there was um, there's some very important things in our lives that are not under our control. Like, I mean, the best example is, am I loved or not? You mm. know, does she love me? Or does anybody love me? Does anybody love me? Yeah. Because I can't make somebody else love me. I can try to be lovable. You know, I can hope somebody loves me. And, but it's nothing you, certainly can't force that it's not under your control it's just totally out not out, under your control also of course the fact that i'm going to die someday i mean i could commit suicide and that would be under my control but i can't keep from dying some whenever yeah. that time comes and that's something i care about <laughs> life and death uh it's very basic and it's not under my control and the very fact that I was born in the first place, yeah. I didn't, I didn't bring that about. Now you could say my parents did, but um, they didn't design the process or, you know, I mean, they didn't invent that. Um, they just had sex, you know, which yeah. I'm sure they enjoyed. And um, I was the result. Anyway, so that gave me a, an idea about what, where the concept of God might come from and fit in. So God is, what I said in that book was, God is a symbol of that fact that there are these important things that aren't under our control that we care about a whole lot. Now, it doesn't follow that nothing's under our control and, and not only trivial things. I mean, like I can decide whether or not to, you know, pick up a, my teacup, you know. Yeah. Put it, uh, that's under my control, obviously. But also some important things are under my control, like whether or not I do the right thing, whether I care about doing the right thing, whether or not I do it in a particular situation. Um, so I think, so my thinking there is the concept of God, not, I don't want to say God is just a concept. I mean, I almost did that in that book. So I've kind of moved beyond that, but um, God accounts for the fact that there are things that aren't under our control, but somehow something gets them done. Or now I would say somebody gets them done, hmm. uh, a person, and that's God. Uh, so I, so that was kind of like my first step back towards theism, as opposed to just uh, like something like Hinduism or Zen Buddhism, or where there's some kind of 
ultimate reality, but you don't want to personalize it. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you know, have this kind of monistic view, like, uh, like Alan Watts, you know, he talked about the supreme identity, which is you are God, you know, you just don't, you've forgotten it, but you really are God, that kind of thing. But the problem is if I'm God, uh, yeah, well, I'm not consciously God. <laughs> I mean, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm still not in control of those things. Yeah. You know, that I care about a whole lot. And um, so it, it makes more sense to me now to think I'm not God, but I'm, I'm in this relationship with God. Yeah. And then uh, a, sort of a second move was, uh, when I started thinking about the afterlife, because that's this problem of, oh, okay, I'm going to die someday, no matter what I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I can be healthy and I could take the right medicines and do go to the doctor and everything under the sun. But we all know, you know, from the time we're little kids that, you know, someday we're going to die. So where do we go? Now, what happens? What happens then? Is it nothingness? That's what I used to think. Yeah. I think somehow I could reconcile myself to that. You could? I, I've never been able to. Well, I tried. I can't anymore. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I, at least I thought I could. I tried but, so hard, but, you know, because I was like, that's logical. Good. That makes sense. That, I mean, lo like Sam Harris, I think it's Sam Harris makes a case for that. And I'm like, it's logical, but. Well, then, um, then it feels like my whole life is meaningless, and that would be a complete waste that's of time. Right. That's, yeah. I mean, that's what I think now. But I, I, I tried. Well, you know, like Epicurus, the ancient Greek philosopher, he he reasoned sort of like Sam Harris does. Like, uh, I mean, he he put it very simply. Like, when I'm dead, you know, the death. Let's see what how's he say it. Um, where death is, we are not. Where we are, death is not. Hmm or death is not a problem. <laughs> you know, in other words, when you're dead, you're not there to be dead. So mm -hmm. it's not like an experience that you're having of being dead. It's just nothingness. And so nothingness is nothing to worry about. That's, you know, that's the argument. Yeah. Uh, reasoning. But that's exactly what I'm afraid. Of. <laughs> I don't want to be nothing. Exactly. Me neither. Yeah. So, um, and then I read a little book, this is, comes from teaching philosophy because there was a, a, a logician named Raymond Smellian, a logician and philosopher. I used some of his book. He writes these very ingenious and sort of entertaining logic puzzle books. And I use them in my logic classes I'd have, where they're like writing assignments, like solve the puzzle and explain the solution. Um, and, but he's also written some books where he's just talking about his, his views of life and religion and stuff. And he said, and it kind of surprised me, just like out of the blue, he says, I believe in an afterlife because I can't imagine myself not existing. Mm. And I thought, and that was a very simple little argument. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, well, let's see. Can I imagine myself not existing? And talk about logic. Uh, no, I can't because I would have to sort of imagine myself away and I can't do that when I'm the one doing the imagining. Yeah. You know, and, and actually that idea of nothingness is not so logical. It doesn't really make sense to me. It's not, 
doesn't really seem like a real genuine possibility that um, I could not exist, which sounds, I mean, some people, well, they'll say that sounds pompous and arrogant or something. You're like, what? You can't imagine you, you don't exist. What about the time before you were born? Um, well, yeah, I, I believe in a pre-life too. I believe mm -hmm. in a pre-life and an afterlife Be because I just, it doesn't make sense to me. I can't imagine myself not existing. Do you believe like we're in re your pre-life is, are you reincarnated or are you just existing somewhere else before you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to take a spin. The way I make sense of it is using that dream analogy. Again, this is one thing I got from Art Kleps that I, I do think is valuable. Um, he said something like always go back to the dream analogy. And uh, so you can make, you know, if you ask yourself, well, what, what would, what's it like to die? You know, if, if it's not nothingness, if you're still conscious in some way, what's that like? What could that be like? And then this will also apply to the pre-life. But um, if you think about dreams, I mean, for example, I have dreamed of, um, that I was in some very dangerous situation, you know, so it'd be a scary dream like I'm being chased by some psychotic killer or something like that. Uh, or I'm falling from a great height and I'm, you know, about to hit the ground. And what, what always happens is if it's an extreme crisis situation like that in the dream is I wake up. That's the transition. Yes. I'm no longer in that dream. I'm really glad and relieved. It was a dream. Uh, so I'm thinking, this is just a way of imagining what it might be like. Mm. Dying might be like waking up from a dream. Or on the other hand, it might be like falling asleep into a dream because that's also that similar kind of transition from one situation, one world to another. Um, and then the, so on this view, <laughs> I mean, if I think of it this way, uh, when I die, I'll find myself just like, like I do when I wake up from a dream or if I fall asleep and then I find my, and now I'm dreaming. It'll seem like there's a world around me. I have a body. I'm doing things. Uh, things are happening to me. I'm doing some things. Some things are under control. Some things aren't under my control. And uh, it won't be that different from this life. It'll be doubt. I do think because, I mean, if you're a Christian, you also have to think there's some sort of transformation that's a, that's a good thing <laughs> that's going to happen at some time or other in yeah. the future. Uh, but at least I can think of uh, dying and being reborn into a new life like life everlasting being simply something like that. Like in each life you die, you, you suffer and you die, but you also have joy. And what happens in the future life is pretty much the same kind of thing that happens in this life. And, I hope for that too. And it feels like then there, then I've had lives before this one too. But I mean, if you think about the dream analogy, that is something we've all experienced countless times. Yeah. And so it's not, this isn't just speculation based on no experience at all. 
it's uh, it's extrapolating from what we do experience all the time in our lives if we pay attention to our dreams at all uh, to what it might be like when we die. Yeah, just you painting that picture of like fall, falling and possibly about to die in your dream and waking up. If if that's what it's like for us when we're about to die and we go through that same experience, I'm just like thinking about that in my head and I'm like, wow, that would be the greatest way to explain what I would hope for is that it feels that way. Like I'm waking up now and maybe this has all been a dream, but it's been a dream that's been meaningful at the same time. Cause I don't want to say that this isn't meaningful as sometimes I think my dreams aren't meaningful, but the more actually, the more I, I study dreams and the more I, I learn about them, the more I think they are meaningful and we're supposed to get something from them too. Um, no. But yeah, that's just a great depiction. Like that's what it's like when we die. It's like we're waking up from a scary dream and here we are in our actual reality. So that, helped me with anxiety about dying. Uh, and it also turned me much more towards Christianity also, because I, well, I was raised as a Christian, so that's in my background. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the tradition and history of our culture. Yeah. Uh, and it is a hallmark of Christianity that it is all about I think everlasting life. I mean, that's the great promise of Christianity. And that's clearly what the early Christians were so happy about. Yeah. Um, and so that way of thinking, oh, I, I, it does make sense to believe in an afterlife after all. And in fact, it doesn't really make sense to me anyway, not to believe in an afterlife. And, and that had always been a stumbling block with me with Christianity because it's like, I took it seriously. Uh, I didn't want to call myself a Christian unless I really believed those things Christians say they believe. Yeah. And that was one of them. Do I, I didn't really believe in an afterlife. Mm, and that's such an honest admission too that, man, I wish more people were aware of that whole, I don't want to call myself something until I understand it. And I sit on on kind of that expectation for myself too. I don't want to align myself or say this is what I am or this is what I do unless I fully understand it. And I think a lot of us jump into, I mean, I know I did. I didn't grow up with a formal Christian background, but it obviously had influence over my own parents' beliefs um, and what they chose to reject and accept and implement. But when I did start getting into I guess, Christianity and going to church and, and doing what I thought was expected of me as an adult and married and blah, blah, blah was, okay, I'll accept all this. But then I was like, I don't know what I'm accepting. I don't know what I'm affirming. I don't know what I'm saying that I, I stand for. And a lot of us do that. We don't, we're not aware of what exactly we're calling ourselves when we're calling ourselves Christian. And I think that's okay too. I mean, I think everybody has to struggle with that. And, and I still do just, you know, it's like, it's, yeah. always, it's always easy to say what you, you know, have a good philosophy, Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and, and it is important too, but, but it's always also hard to live up to. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. And, um, okay. So 
that was sort of my second stage. And then what led to this book was uh, struggling with the question of, okay, but now if there is an afterlife, and it's like I said, um, what about, uh, the, what makes it all ultimately meaningful? Yeah, if, if I didn't have an afterlife, I have a real problem with that because that seems to make life meaningless. It's like, okay, I just, you just live, you know, for usually a little less than a hundred years and, 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 and you die and that's it. And then, then what was the point of it all? You know, mm -hmm. if, if you're permanently unconscious, if death is permanent unconsciousness, then what is, what difference does it make at that point, whether you had a good life or a bad life or whatever? Um, and I used to think, and my, my, I had an answer to that, uh, which was, um, well, objectively speaking, I still had exactly the life that I had. And the fact that I died doesn't go out back and in reverse and wipe that out, make that not true, what already was true. So objectively speaking, it's like, there's a sort of eternity to my life, even though it was finite. But, but my problem is I don't want just, I, I don't just care only about the, what's objectively true. I also have the subjective side to me that cares about, well, what's happening to me that, you know, right now. Yeah. And, and if I'm permanently unconscious, what good does it do me that it's objectively true that I had the life that I had, you know? So coming, you know, coming to believe in an afterlife really helped with that. But then, then you can still raise the question, okay, suppose there's life after life and you have, I mean, which is what I now believe that we do have life everlasting. Um, that still doesn't answer the question, what's the point of it all, which you want a religion to do, you know? And so what about Christianity's answer to that question? And so that's what this book, Psychedelic Christianity, is about. Uh, it's about um, that, you know, what is the ultimate goal? Uh, is there just one ultimate goal? And, you know, could there be more than one ultimate goal? And, you know, that's what that, especially the first chapter of this book is all about. And then it goes on from there. But, um, you know, I, and, and I, I talk about the fact that I can understand why you might not want there to be an ultimate goal because it sounds like if you once you reach that, well, everything's over with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what do you I do just, then? Yeah, we're we're taught to find our purpose and our meaning, and sometimes, and and I mean, I had recently written about this too. I had been struggling with it. I have a lot of friends who are coming up and doing influencing things in our writers and podcasters. And they have these kind of like little mentalities and affirmations of, you know, find your purpose and, and find your meaning. And I'm like, but is there just one? And then what happens if I find it and then I attain it and how long do I attain it for? And then what? And I yeah. think it, for me, it feels like it just limits me. Like if I do find what my purpose is, my ultimate purpose, the one thing I'm supposed to do when I actually do it, am I good? Can I just chill? Can I not care about anything else going forward? Cause I already did that. And I, for me, sometimes, you know, I struggle because I'm like, well, I'm not just a podcaster and I'm not just a writer and I'm not just a mom and I'm not just this. 
But in the moments when I am having to do something that specifies to that role, that's my purpose. Like I would hope so. Like my purpose right now is to have this interview with Jack Call and to talk about psychedelic Christianity. And once that's done, it continues. And I like how you say that, well, yeah, there is an ultimate goal, but there's more than one ultimate goal. And I, I kind of live by that. Yeah, I have a purpose. Every day I have a purpose. And I might have greater purposes too that take longer to attain. But I'm comfortable with seeing a purpose in every moment with every exchange and with every interaction. And I kind of get the feeling that's what you're trying to cast as, as something we should be accepting of too. It's like there is a big purpose and then there's all this other purpose too. And it's all the good stuff that we're supposed to aim for. Yeah. And another way to think of it is um, if each of us counts just as much as every other one, uh, that in itself is an indication there's more than one ultimate goal. Because uh, if, I have, if I'm in the right relationship with God and somebody else isn't, then uh, what good is my being in the right relationship with God do? That mm. was a person. That doesn't do them any good. Um, and if each of us is an end in himself or herself, then, yeah, each of us has to be there enjoying whatever that ultimate goal is. And, and each one of us is just as ultimate as every other one. And, it's, and it's, there's no kind of like summing it all up where we lump us all together and then that makes the ultimate goal. It's like each one of us is this one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. And we have to be there experiencing God's being in order for it to, for that God really to be our God, you know, for, for God to be a God that I really believe in and worship. It has to be my experience and, and the same thing for you and for everybody else. Mm -hmm. so, so that's another reason why there's more than one ultimate goal because uh, each one of us is ultimate. And that's like the parable of the lost sheep. So this shepherd has, you know, 100 sheep, 99 of them are just fine. There's this one you know, reckless sheep who strays away, and the shepherd drops everything going looking for that one sheep, even though in the meantime, the other 99 might go astray, because that one is just as ultimately important as all the other 99 are. So it's, this is sort of like an anti-utilitarian ethics, because utilitarianism says you can just sum it all up. And you just try to create the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Yeah. But then, that, then that justifies sacrificing some individuals because that might make for the greatest happiness of, of a greater number. Uh, and Christianity seems to say, Jesus seems to say, that's not the way it is. Yeah. Every single one of you is just as important, is the ultimate goal, in a sense, is the ultimate is of ultimate value. Yeah. And I took what I took from that just to kind of put into practice for me as a reminder is I, and I wrote this down too, that being in right relation with God also requires us to work hard to be in right relation with everyone else. And I don't mean the whole world because I'm incapable of even relating to the whole world, but <laughs> I, I, I put point that for me is like whomever I'm in proximity to, to, for me to maintain my right relationship with God, I got to maintain my, a right relationship with the other person. And I think that 
is a challenge, um, a really good challenge that we should all try and wrestle with because we have a hard time staying in right relation with other people and we draw lines and we block people or we walk out of people's lives or we end relationships and we justify it with our Christian beliefs. And it's like, it's kind of missing the point of loving your neighbor. And I know I'm jumping forward here, but your, your breakdown of what loving the neighbor meant with the possibility of us thinking, okay, well maybe he didn't mean like the entire world, which is not to diminish love for the entire world, but the people in front of you and you might be missing that point, love this person. But then you also go to, and what if Satan is our neighbor? And are we called to love him? And for me, I'm like, yes, exactly. These are questions we need to wrestle with. And so, yeah, I'm wondering if we could just sit on that for a little bit. Your, what you brought, what you peeled back and that whole, who your neighbor is. Yeah. I mean, that's clearly Jesus's message, right? He said, yes. I mean, love, you know, um, the two greatest commandments, you know, are love the Lord God with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind, you know. Um, and one that is like it is love your neighbor as yourself. And that always, I think people wonder what, why, why just the neighbor, you know, uh, why not humanity in general? And, and I think it's because the love you're commanded there to feel or to be in is concrete and particular. It's not this sort of general, it's very easy to say, I love humanity. Uh, I'm a, I'm a great humanitarian or at least to aspire to that, but it's not so easy. It just makes it clearer if you just focus on your relationship with whoever, whoever you happen to be interacting with at the moment. That's the person you're being commanded to love as yourself. In other words, to see as another self, just like yourself. I mean, it's that person is, is an I just like you are. And they're, if you can see it that way and not, not see that person as an object, mm. Now that person is also an object to you and you're an object to that person, but that's not as important as the fact that that person is also a subject, just like you are a subject of experience who also suffers and feels joy and has desires and fears and, you know, goes through all those kinds of things that you go through. And given your relationship with them, can there now be a part of your subject? Like, I, have, I think about that with my husband is like, you know, and I'm breaking down understanding the love of Eros. And so I'm trying to basically show that Eros isn't just about an objectable love, but it's about making the object your subject. And when we're talking about relating to people, they become a subject of our entire experience, depending upon how long we include them in a relationship. And I think maybe that where that whole transformative power of love actually comes into play is person is object, but now I love this person. This person and the love I have with this person has now become the subject of this relationship between us. And anyway, it was just something that stuck out to me that actually helped me with something I was working on too, is how love transforms object into subject and subject into proximity and, um, what it means when we say we love the neighbor. So, yeah. Sorry if you would please yeah. continue. <laughs> no, I think I know what you mean. Uh, what if you think about what makes you 
the kind of person who you are, you know, your whole self-image, what, what makes you, you. I mean, there's one sense of what makes you, you is just this very basic given fact that you look upon the world from this particular subjective point of view, and that's just a given. And, and that, that in itself is a very important fact, which also leads me to believe in God, because that's something I didn't create. I didn't, I didn't choose my point of view. I just find myself experiencing the world from this particular point of view. But then there's another aspect of the question of like, who am I or what kind of person I am? And that's all the details of what my life is like, what I'm like, what my character's like, what, what do I do? What do I think? And other people that I interact with is an inextricable part of that. It's not like I can separate. I can't really conceive of myself separate from all those people are important in my life or people I interact with. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what that would be, you know, even. There was also something else that made me think, and I was, I was like thinking about our conversation coming up. So I was like rereading my book. <laughs> and uh, there was a line in it was, uh, I, I said, best of all, of course, is when what one person wants to have done for him or her is exactly what the other person wants to do. Now that sounds, I mean, I think the first thing that springs to mind is eroticism there, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a sexual relationship, that's sort of a paradigm of that. But I think this might, if I'm trying to understand your point of view, why, why eros is your main theme, it seems like. I can see how this um, also takes on religious overtones. I mean, it also... It's like if you think about a relationship with God in this way, like being in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is feeling like that about God, like God is doing to you, for you, exactly what you want to have done to you yeah. and, and sort of vice versa. You know, that's the, that's the, the ultimate, that's the ultimate goal or, you know, one way to put it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so I can see how you call that eros. At least eros should not be left out. You know, there's all these different names for love in Greek, and people harp on that. And yeah, um, you know, agape is supposed to be the highest or something. But uh, I, I, I think there's a tradition, a historical tradition in Christianity that's not so healthy, that that puts down eros. You know, and uh, you know the monastic you know, celibacy. And, and, and I just can't identify with that. Um, I mean, yeah. I can understand it. I can understand it intellectually, like how, okay, well, if you're really purely, if you want to just purely devote yourself to God, then that's all you do. And, and, and everything else is a distraction, including sex. You know? Yeah. But yes, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think it has to be that way. I don't know. It's not, that's not my ideal anyway. And where I struggle with that is, okay. And so, I mean, I'm reading uh, the theology of the body by Pope John Paul II, you know, and dudes never had sex. And so I can only take him so far into everything. and, And I mean, he knows his stuff. He knows his theology. He knows his translations. But at the same time, like you can know all of that 
but you have never experienced that intimate flesh connection. And so, and a lot of the people that I admire and respect are celibates, have never had sex. And so I can only go so far and say, I'm on board with you, but you fall short of including one of the seven and a half billion people that God created for you to interact with. And that I feel like it's missing, but that's for them. However they want to relate to God, I'm not going to judge you, but I would feel like that's not enough because I don't understand the point of all these people and the parts if they're not to be intermingling with one another. And so, yeah, that's just, I just feel like it's, I, I would be missing something. Danielle would be missing something without another and to only have an experience with God, like to only relate to God, to, to find my ecstasy through God. I just couldn't do it. No. Mm -mm. And don't you feel like celibate people don't know what they're missing? Exactly. Yes, I do. I do. Like Richard Rohr, he is, um, you know, he, he's a phenomenal author and, but he's also never had sex. And so I think you've got all of this stuff figured out, but imagine what you had would figure out if you took that next step. Like, I just feel like it's, it unlocks something. It unlocks a mystery of so much. And I just feel like you, you purposely decided to reject this. Fine. You know, and maybe God will be like, what, 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 why did you, I put this here for you. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're missing out. Big it, time. <laughs> it borders on blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Refusing to enjoy good for good. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. Your blasphemy of the spirit, spirit however, um, that blew my mind. It really did, because I've always had that question, well, what is it? And everyone's like, well, I think blah, blah, this part of the Old Testament speaks to it. I think this part of the New Testament. And you're just like, can someone give me an answer? What does it mean? And you did give me an answer. And it's not that it's the absolute definite answer, but it was an answer that rested with me where I went, ah, I've been trying to figure out ways to put words into this anyway. My constant Twitter response is woe to those who call evil good and good evil because I I'm just baffled by how people will refuse to see good for good because it came from this person's mouth or this person's mouth and so you just really put to words something that that I am disgruntled by in our current society is the way that people are and I, like how did you come to this how did you how did you figure out this must be what it is Oh, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I just thought about it. it. Just, that was sort of the only thing that made sense to me. Sure. Make it so easy, Jack. <laughs> if what, what could it, well, it's part of that reading, like the context where, where does Jesus say that, you know, what's going on? What's going on is mm-hmm. he's just been healing people and he's getting criticized by the scribes and the Pharisees for doing it on the Sabbath, so for breaking a rule. And he gets really mad about it, which is kind of nice because it's sort of the humanity of Jesus too, right? Yeah. He, he gets mad sometimes, he's not the, you know, the Prince of Peace, but he, he comes he to the forward too. Yeah. <laughs> and he tells them off, you know, because they're saying, you know, 
oh, you think God gave us the Sabbath as something like a cudgel hold over our head if we break that rule. That's the whole point of it. And so I'm not supposed to heal somebody on, on the Sabbath because they, they have to wait till Monday, you know, or whatever, uh, make an appointment because I'm breaking a rule. And so it looked like, well, what's going on there? What's he, what's he so mad about? He's mad about the fact that they're ignoring what's really good and calling it evil. Uh, it's like being so morally blind that you can't even see what, what is good and thinking it's evil. And the reason that's unforgivable is because just logically, if that's your frame of mind, if you're going to think there's something bad about being forgiven, because that's something good, yeah. you, you won't be able to recognize the goodness of being forgiven, forgiving and being forgiven. And, and so you won't be able to accept forgiveness when it's given to you. And, and that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the one unforgivable sin. It's unforgivable, not because God is trying to, hoping to catch you and punish you. It's, be, it's because, no, God's willing to forgive you, but you're not even willing to accept that forgiveness because you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. There's got to be some catch here. Uh, there must be something wrong with this. Uh, can we really trust this? Does this really follow the rules, et cetera? Yeah, I, I see that very predominantly um, when we hear about, you know, things that we, we want to see justice for, but we don't see justice done. And, you, you know, you start to think, okay, well, we should reconcile with this. We should just, you know, the forgiveness is for whomever um, was the one that was infracted upon and work towards healing and dealing with this grief. But people are like, no. No, 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 no. This person is not getting forgiveness until this and this and this and this happens. And I mean, that's a predominant mentality in my own family and with my in-laws. It's like, I will not forgive you until blah, 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 blah. I don't care how much good stuff you've done here or there. And, and I don't care what other people think about you. I'm holding this. And I think that is such a heavy burden and so much extra baggage to carry around into just find justification to continue hating someone or not forgiving them. And it's just perpetuated over and over again, especially through social media. And um, for me, just reading this and thinking about it made me really, cause I, I get caught up. I mean, I can get caught up in things and I can think, wow, I don't think that person should have been forgiven so easily. But then I think about all the times that I've needed forgiveness and all the times that I've been grateful for the grace of others, that it was just a reminder for me to not do that, to not condemn, condemn anything that is good just because I don't like that person or because I have feelings about that, because that can jade us and it can, it can really harden us. Yeah. And in the Lord's prayer, Jesus links the two things together, you know, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. That helps you. It, it is hard to forgive, but it helps when you realize, well, I'm, I, I need to be forgiven too. So mm -hmm. that makes you more forgiving of other people if you realize that if you think about the fact that you need to be forgiven also. And that's another hallmark of Christianity, I think, that is why, I mean, having studied somewhat the religions of the world, um, 
you know, for example, this is missing in Islam. Now, they, Islam does talk about God being merciful a lot, and that's good, you know. And I don't want to be putting down a whole religion, you know, and I'm, you know, I, but I'm just saying for my own, what I know about it and want to know about Christianity, the reason I prefer Christianity is because of this emphasis on forgiveness as opposed to revenge. You know, revenge in Christianity is not a good thing, uh, not for any human against any other human anyway, that's for sure. And in my view, not even, uh, not God having, God doesn't care about revenge at all either. Mm. Uh, and in Islam, it seems like there's enough in the Quran that uh, it seems like God does care about revenge. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten that impression too. Um, and and we were we met a um, a Middle Eastern family a couple of years ago, and we we befriended them and and did a lot of things with them and spent a lot of time with them. And when religion did come up, I got the same impression. And it was, no, God is pissed and God needs revenge. And I'm like, um, so like if you mess up too many times, there's just, there's nothing. And nope, nope, you're done. And I just thought, well, that seems really, you know, and that was his own interpretation too. So I don't, I don't want to speak for the whole. Um, but some Christians interpret Christianity that way too. They so. do. You you screwed up too many times, and it doesn't matter how if you repent or pray, you're you're going to hell. You will right. be eternally punished. There's there's no salvation for you. And um, man, I mean, I that alone creates so many anxiety problems for people. Like yeah. that alone should be a reason why we should address these kinds of views and go. Well, they're not healthy. Number one. And I just, I never liked the idea of thinking God was so petty. Like God's really that mad. Like you, you broke my, you broke my, my truck. I'm never going to forgive you. Like, is God like that? And to wrap your head around that, I think it says a lot about the people who believe God is like that. Cause they're probably like that too. So. <laughs> well, you can find passages in the Bible that will support that view, but yeah. um, you can you know, you can find passages in the Bible that will support a lot of things. I can, yeah, I can find a passage in the Bible that supports that we should worship fish, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I believe in universal salvation. Yeah. And, um, and I know not all Christians do, but uh, for me, it's like there's this promise, and, th and that's partly what this book is about, too. Um the idea of the restoration of all things, or in the end, the ultimate goal is God will be all in all. And I don't see how that is reconcilable with some people being eternally condemned to hell, mm -hmm. you know, who are not reconciled to God or eternally separate from God. How can God be all in all while that's going on? I can't see that as the, the ultimate state of things, you know? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. And how much sense does it make to you to see um, Christianity wrapped around politics? Uh, none at all. <laughs> <laughs> now, one part um, that you wrote is stuck out to me so deeply. Jesus's promise is divine justice, not social justice. And that for me, I, and I think I, I said this to someone or I wrote this somewhere too. I was like, I felt so much weight lifted off of me 
And I've been going through this process over the last year because I'd say like 18 months or so ago, I was probably declaring myself as a liberal feminist. And I started digging deeper into things and started seeing that maybe these are just distractions that we don't need to focus on because if we focus on them too much, we end up becoming that which we hate. And I was noticing that about myself. Like I was going on this like social justice tirade about, um, I think it was right after I finished reading this book, White Fragility. And I just decided I was going to call everybody a racist. And, you know, because I was going to interrupt racism and fix it. And anyway, I noticed I was falling down the wrong rabbit hole. And I was clinging to this whole social, social justice mentality that I really had to pull myself back. And I just really appreciated that you talked about that and that you talked about how politics isn't about bringing the kingdom of God. Like it's just not happening. It's just, and it's not that it's evil, but sometimes I think we forget there are things out there that we try so hard to quantify as Christian or as godly or as evil. And then that's it. And we don't realize that some of this stuff is just junk or noise to pass the time and it's not necessarily required and it does nothing to bring about the kingdom of God. So for me, I just, I, I loved that, that Jesus's promise is divine justice, not social justice. And um, what do you think we need to do to, I don't know, disentangle Christianity from politics? Well, I think, I, I mean, in the book I write about making a distinct, that distinction between divine justice and social justice. And, different ways that something can be right. It can be the right thing to do to force somebody to stop doing something unjust. But that's not, that's not the right thing in the highest sense. That's not the kind of thing that will bring us closer to the kingdom of God. Because if it were, God would do that. God, God we, we, we assume that God is in control of everything other than that he chooses to be in control of. But he doesn't choose to be in control of things that he lets us be in control of, like whether or not we do the right thing, yeah. how we treat each other, uh, whether or not we love each other. Uh, and he can't, he could, uh, he could make it, make us all automatically do the right thing and be just. But the problem is we wouldn't be autonomous agents then. We wouldn't really be humans we wouldn't really be persons we'd be we would be things we'd be like machines and that's not as good as a situation where we are humans we are persons like god like god is a person who we are in control of whether we're, whether we do the right thing or not uh, but it's just like saying you know how i can't force somebody to love me God can't force us to love him either, and he can't force us to love the neighbor as ourselves, and he can't force us to do the just thing as long as he allows us to have that freedom. So similarly, we can force somebody else to do the right thing or to stop doing the wrong thing, but that's not the highest goal. The highest goal would be for us to ourselves stop doing the wrong thing because we do understand that it is the wrong thing and and we we love god and we love the neighbor as ourselves and that's what would bring about the kingdom of god it's when we ourselves when, when i 
stop doing something unjust because I realize it is unjust. And I ask for forgiveness because I realize what I've done is wrong. Now, that does again, it doesn't mean that I should never do something where I would force somebody else to do something, you know, uh, or not do something. So, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't have any laws or police or, you know, social justice in the sense of fighting politically for just causes and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's just that that's never going to lead to the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God doesn't have anything to do with forcing anybody to do anything. It's, yeah. it's all based on free choice. Love. So the only thing that's going to bring us closer to the kingdom of God is acts done out of love and understanding and not, not something that's just, even though it may be the right thing to do, um, if it does involve the use of force to force somebody to do something right, uh, that's sort of neutral. And then of course, doing something wrong moves us away from the kingdom of God. So that's how, that's kind of how I think of it. I hear you on that. It's, it's like, we can't get into the habit of thinking that we should, this is my, and this is my, one of my beefs with just politics and the way legislation works is I saw somebody do something I didn't like. Now I need to create a law that bans it. And instead I, I, I too am with that. Like if I don't want to see these bad things happen in the world, if I'm not okay with racism, if I don't like sexism, if I'm against being a xenophobic, uh, the only thing that I have any amount of control over is ensuring that I'm not being that, that I'm not doing these things that don't bring about the kingdom and that are unjust. And if we're imitative creatures, then all we can hope for is that we're creating an example that is going to be mimicked, that is going to be seen as the right thing to do based on someone's free choice to do it, not because... I'm scared I'll be called this if I don't, or I'm scared I'll be charged with this if I don't. But because in my heart, I know that this is another human being, a reflection of God, and they're just as deserving of love and respect and honor as I am. And that's how we bring about the kingdom of God. Um, but yeah, just as a, just as a, at that, towards the end, it was, that just stuck out to me so, so greatly because it's, the reason it was so burdensome is I'm sure other people relate to this is you feel like you need to be concerned about everything. And if you're not advocating for the right thing, then someone's going to assume you're against that thing. But then you're like, how do I carry all of these overflowing plates of concern and care and compassion for everything when I can't even figure out how to keep the peace in my own house. And so just for me, that was a way for me to go. I don't have to hold so many expectations for everything that I need to speak for and write for and stand up for and do this. And so I would hope that other people would kind of get that similar message. Like we can only do what we can do through our own actions and through demonstrations, but we can't go around telling people do this, handing them ultimatums, saying do that, don't do that, or I'm going to call the cops on you or whatever it is. So um, that in just just that very clear distinction like well politics isn't evil but it's really not going to bring the kingdom of god either and i started saying that um to a lot of people in a lot of recent conversations i've had just you know saying you know i read this in this book and it totally resonates with me this idea that maybe we should stop expecting politics to bring about the kingdom of god 
Um, we can have a certain expectation for how politics affects our society, but it's not affecting the kingdom of God necessarily, and it's not bringing about it. And I would like to see a pull away. I would like to see the church remove itself from the political strands that keep choking it off and turning it into something that it's not supposed to be. No, I think politics for a lot of people becomes a sort of substitute religion. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's more, more the religion than Christianity is. Mm. What, what the, what do they really care about those things? You know, because I've seen it. uh, I, my wife and I used to be members of a very progressive Christian church and with the emphasis on progressive, you know, like, and it just seemed like the most important thing to the people in that congregation were these political labels you could fix on things. And, um, you know, for example, they would have um, these conversations of faith with uh, a Muslim imam and a Jewish rabbi and then our minister. So they're always very eager to reach out to other non-Christians like Muslims, Jews, uh, and probably other ones too. You know, we also, there was this interreligious um, organization, interfaith organization that headquartered into the church also. When it came to non-progressive Christians, <laughs> they were the real enemy, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, no, they didn't want to have any. In fact, I even brought up something like that once I said, maybe we should have a dialogue with uh, fundamentalist Christians. And, and then they just kind of scoffed, said, good luck with that, you know. And it's like, that just seemed weird to me, like um, something's gone wrong here because it's, it, it just turned out to be like, I might as well just go to the Democratic Party headquarters or, you know, mm. um, join some political party or organization and go to that all the time. You know, because that's basically what it was, except it was dressed up in Christian terms. And it wasn't insincere. I mean, you know, they sincerely believed that. And they, and they, and it wasn't totally non-Christian either. I mean, there was plenty of Christian stuff there, too. And there was, there was a lot of good in the church, too. But it just, eventually it turned me off because it came, became so much, like, it just seemed to me like, is this really church or is this... Am I watching CNN? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, right. In fact, the minister floated this idea and was kind of promoting it while we'd have these meetings were called, you know, reading the times and, you know, so they'd all read like a liberal newspaper and comment on it before church, you know, like a, like a meeting before church. And I thought, no, I don't want any part of that. And anyway, we ended up leaving that church and we're now members of an Episcopal church, which uh, I really like. the, the, The priest is a really wise man. And, and he, he has said things like, I want there to be one place where you can go where, you know, we leave politics outside the door. Yeah. Yeah, I I can't wait for um, this this whole election season to be over because I, for, for me and my work, <laughs> I'm like, let's focus on the erotic and not politics, guys. And they're like, but it's Super Tuesday. And I'm like, <laughs> um let's talk about eroticism. There's a debate on, and did you know, did you know who just dropped out? And it's, yeah, I feel like politics is in everything. It's in your food. It's at your rest. I mean, it's literally at your restaurants now, like depending upon where you go to eat, that must mean that you're this or that. And I'm like, 
you know, and now what's scarier for me is I, in, in some instances I see this is, you know, your politics says a lot about how erotic you are. And I'm like, okay, I need to do something here. I'm jumping <laughs> in this. No, 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 no. There is nothing political about eroticism. That's the big myth. So I'm working to dispel that. But um, okay, so just final question before we wrap up here, just because I've never heard this term used. Uh, you are the janitor and president of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychedelic Christianity. What does that mean? What's a janitor in this position? Oh, well, I clean up around here. <laughs> I, I vacuum the house in dust. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's kind of what I was thinking. I'm a janitor too. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, the idea is um, the janitor might be your most enlightened person. Because <laughs> um, yeah, you've seen everybody else's messes. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Okay. Well, this has been um, such a great conversation. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that you were willing to join me and talk about this. And I recommend everyone pick up Psychedelic Christianity. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Jack Call, thank you so much for this. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it too. And uh, it, like I say, it means a lot to me to have somebody who appreciates what I've written. It's what it's, that's the really the only motivation for writing is you feel like you're writing to somebody. You don't know who it is, but somebody out there is going to get it. Yeah. Appreciate it. Well, I can't wait to read what you're working on next. And it sounds like I need to go back to Amazon and see what else you have out there for me. So well, and have you to... some books. What's that? Have you published some books? I'm still working on it. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping to finish it up. I have, I have two chapters left and I just, I haven't touched the darn manuscript in six weeks now, so I need to get back to it. Well, it's not easy. I know that. Yeah, no. <laughs> it, it'll be finished it when it's finished. Yeah. What's that? It never gets any easier writing. Right? Yeah, I've, I've been noticing that, but that's okay, because <laughs> I'm developing somewhere. <laughs>